Father, we pray as uh, we're challenged about who our true God is this morning, uh, that you help us to put our hope and trust in you and not in our money. Help us not to be greedy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Wall Street, uh, if there was ever a place in this world which understood money, understood how to make it, make loads of it, uh, how to finesse the systems, how to squeeze the last drop of blood out of that stone, Wall Street would be it. Uh, Three of the slogans on Wall Street, which they're reputed to say to each other all the time, uh, sum it up, three sentiments of those involved, buy or die. There you go. Uh, Lunch is for wimps. And the most famous one, greed is is good. Uh, One of the most gripping movie speeches of all time, Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas in the movie Wall Street, concludes... The point is, ladies and gentlemen, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. It cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind as he speaks to the shareholders about how the directors are just ripping them off. And says, you need to be more greedy and get rid of them. And while few of us would say it as clearly as that, while we might even, on a good day, publicly deny that greed is good, yet still, I think, greed claws at our hearts and our minds and our souls as we desire more and more things and long to get further and further ahead and one day maybe even become comfortable. Ross Giddens, the social economic commentator, puts it like this, Greed has always been with us and insatiability isn't unique to modern Western civilisation, but we're certainly giving it a good workout. To us, money is the simplest measure of whether you're winning at the game of life. But what is unique to our age is the cultural acceptance, even the encouragement of insatiability. A survey among regular churchgoers in America found that whereas almost 90% said that greed was a sin, so 90% of the church-going Christians said, no, greed's a sin, fewer than 20% said they, ever, they were ever taught that wanting a lot of money was wrong. Greed's a sin, but we want more money, that's okay. Um, that's kind of what greed is. <laughs> and 80% said that they wished they had more money than they did. And I don't know, if I asked her in this morning, would you think, I wish I had more money than I did? I don't know if anyone want to be game and put their hand up or not. It seems that he goes on, it's, <laughs> you're so honest. <laughs> it seems that by comparison with the past, he goes on, greed is regarded as a trivial sin. A retired priest recounted that in his long years of service, all kinds of sins and concerns were confessed to him in the confessional but never once the sin of greed. Well, last week uh, we saw you know, the good thing that money is, blessing from God's use, it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all and certainly shouldn't be the meaning and purpose of life. But then we saw some of the great dangers that God warns that money poses. And they were pretty serious dangers, weren't they? Uh, they can cause money and greed and so causes forgetfulness, makes you forget God. It's a trap that leads to all kinds of desires and to ruin. Uh, we saw how loving it can lead to all kinds of evil and how wealth makes you arrogant and how it gives you false assurances. But I left off last week the single biggest danger, the single biggest problem that the Bible speaks of when it comes to money. 
And that is this, that money could so very easily become your God. Now, there's no more serious charge in the Bible than that of idolatry. It's never viewed as a harmless or a light thing. Idolatry, which is worshipping things in your life as God which are not God. Uh, Idolatry called for the strictest punishments in Israel's law in the Old Testament. It brought about some of the most vitriolic language from God and it called for the most extreme measures in order to avoid it. Whatever you do, if you were a, a follower of God in the Old Testament, you were not to do idolatry, even if you did anything else. Uh, God hates idols. He detests them. And why does God hate them so much? Well, here's the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 6, just so it's not a one-off, Moses says, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. You hear that? The the God who, who made this universe the one who who holds it all together, who sustains it day by day, the the God who who loves with an everlasting love that cannot be matched or fathomed, the the God who is holy and pure and there is no taint of evil about him at all, he describes himself as a jealous God, jealous with a godly and righteous jealousy, jealous for his own glory, jealous that everything he is, and that everything he gives and that everything he does never be attributed to another. Jealous that anything other than he become the meaning and purpose of our lives, the thing we serve. The Israelites were not simply to avoid idolatry, they were told to utterly detest it and abhor it and get rid of it. And yet when we hit the New Testament, it turns out that God wasn't just thinking about Worshipping Baal and the Asherah poles and the things you read in the Old Testament, Molech worship where you sacrifice your sons in the fire of the belly of Molech, or his statue anyway. Uh, He wasn't just thinking of the gods of Greece and Rome. He wasn't thinking about uh, just little shrines of Buddha and laying your fruit and vegetables in front of it and things. When you get to the New Testament, God turns his sight fairly and squarely on greed as the idol of our world. Ephesians 5 verse 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, because such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Or Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Jesus himself warned that money could easily become the God of your life. Uh, Matthew 6, we just read it. Uh, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said you you have to choose who who it is that you're going to love and serve. 
Who are you going to love and serve as God? Is it going to be God or is it going to be your bank account and your possessions? And he says, you can't do both. And you think, well, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? Very strong language. I mean, greed. There's so many worse things, aren't there? Lying to people, uh, murdering. You know, you'd rather not do that. And, you know, greed's pretty harmless. Uh, how can God call greed idolatry and hate it so much? Well, think about it for a moment. How might greed and the lust for more and more stuff, which is what greed is, uh, take the place of God in people's lives? How could it be a substitute for God? Well, lots of ways. might be able to think your own. You, you can think of the way that, that money, wealth and possessions occupy people's attention as only God should. You can think of the sacrifices that people are willing to make to get ahead in terms of money and stuff They sacrifice their family, they sacrifice their time, they sacrifice their friendships, they sacrifice their energy, even their health, all on the altar of profit. When the one we're called to offer our lives to as a living sacrifice is God alone. You could think of the way that all major life decisions revolve around wealth as if it is the determiner of our lives. Where we live, what job we do, where we study, what we're prepared to do or not do, uh, how we use our time. Even our morality is shaped by our love of money. You can think of the way that people find their security in money and possessions. They put their faith in it and trust it above all other things, including God, to protect them and provide for them. And conversely, uh, you can think of the way that the biggest stress and anxiety in people's lives is often money. Uh, It is one of the... Uh, largest causes of marriage breakdown in this country, fighting over money. It's that and adultery, greed and adultery. There you go, they're the two causes of marriage breakdown by and large. Uh, When otherwise appearing to be loving families uh, get together to decide the will of someone, they rip each other apart. And there are families, I know even amongst our church, where the damage has never been repaired. You could think of the way that people's status rises or falls with their money rather than esteeming their standing with God above all else. Think of the way that our affections can be so easily bought and our hearts turned with bribery, with stuff. What's the modern day equivalent of the cathedral? Where where, where do people congregate to worship their gods and to gather in fellowship with each other? I reckon it's Westfield, MacArthur Square. (laughs) And there the preachers are preaching their sermons, calling out the deals, and the religious tracts are put in our letterboxes and handed out on street corners, promising us life, promising us bargains on things that will revolutionise our lives, promising 10% off, 10% off things we never even knew we wanted or needed before. And if you buy two, you might just get one free. (laughs) See, the worship of money, the religion of greed, the idol of possessions and security has overtaken the hearts and minds of our nation. Indeed, it is the unifying religion which cuts across all cultural and religious and social boundaries. 
You know, we call this a multicultural nation, but we are a monocultural nation. We are a monoculture of secular materialism. Why do people want to come? Why are there refugees flooding on boats? Why are there people coming across the world here to live and stuff? For the same thing, reasons we're still here, right? Because we love it, because we love the stuff. We love the freedom. We think we can get it. It's a land of prosperity. That's the religion. That's the culture. Greed is idolatry and God hates it. He hates his glory being given to anything else. But not only does it outrage God, but it grieves him to know that we could be so easily duped into the worship of something which is such a poor substitute for him, which in the end is something worthless, hopeless and pathetic. So we put our hopes in this false God and it cannot deliver, it it cannot bear the burden that we put on it. It's an empty vessel in the end, promising so much and delivering so little. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon uh, calls out the emperor for having no clothes. See, why is it that the love of money, the desire for more and more and more, cannot deliver on its promises and the faith that we so easily and readily put in it? Well, let me give you six reasons from Ecclesiastes. Uh, one of them's not in the chapter we read, the other, the other five are. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 18. It says, it doesn't deliver, it cannot be your God and satisfy, because in the end, someone else is going to get it, not you. He says, 2 verse 18, I hated all things I toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he's going to be a wise man or a fool, yet he'll have control over all the work in which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. You've got to leave it all to someone else. right? We work and we accumulate wealth and we get all this stuff and then someone else is going to end up with it all who's not me. Uh, Kerry Packer was Australia's richest man. James Packer has it all now. The whole empire that Kerry Packer built is now in the hands of someone else and is he a fool? Is he going to waste it all? He sold off a lot of it and he's invested very heavily all in gambling. Uh, that's his sole business now, pretty much. And the person might waste it all. I, I wonder if Solomon was thinking about his own son Rehoboam and wondering whether he was going to grow up to be a good, wise and godly king or an idiot. Well, Rehoboam, his son, went on to become one of the stupidest kings who's ever lived lost 80% of the kingdom, ripped the nation apart, caused a civil war that would last for centuries. You know how long it took him to do that after he became king? Three days. Three days to turn the most prosperous Israel there ever was into a ruin. How? Because he was greedy. His mate said, We could get some more money out of them. We could live in luxury. Let's tax them more. (laughs) And he did. Reason two, Solomon says, why it can't deliver, why money can't deliver. Greed. It never satisfies. Chapter 5, verse 10. We read it. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. You think, okay, if I earned how much more... I'd be, I'd be happy and comfortable. You won't be. Okay? If you think you need more, you won't be. 
Uh, Glenn Wheatley, he did pretty well for himself over the years, managing some of Australia's big names in music. Uh, Midnight Oil, Tommy Emmanuel, John Farnham. In fact, they're all old guys now, aren't they? Uh, do you think he didn't have enough money before he decided to channel $650,000 through tax fraud schemes? Alan Bond, Christopher Scase, Rene Rivkin, Bernie Evers of WorldCom, Steve Vizard. Yeah, what do they all have in common? They all were all men who made it to the top. They were business geniuses who were already very wealthy, but they just needed more. Are they the worst of men? Probably not. I think that what happened was that just one little decision after another, things slowly got out of hand and they ended in jail or in exile. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Reason number three gives, chapter 5, verse 11. He says, all you, all you can do is look at your stuff. It's useless in the end. Or as goods increase, verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Well, look at MacArthur Square there. Um, and what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? That's right, isn't it? The more you have, the more stuff just sits around and collects in your cupboards and in your attic and in your garage and your shed and you buy a new thing and you think, where am I going to put that? <laughs> and you can only drive one car at a time, you know. You can only sleep in one bed at a time. You can only live in one house at a time. Uh, on our honeymoon, Alison and I uh, stopped over in Cairns and we were walking down by the harbour on this glorious Saturday afternoon and, and we were looking at, at the marina and all these beautiful luxury yachts with leather seats on the decks. I don't know why you'd have leather seats on the deck of a yacht. Anyway, seems like it's going to wherever anyway so but they were beautiful they were, looked all brand new and shiny and what amazed me the most about them was they were sitting there at the dock on a glorious saturday afternoon you can have, be wealthy enough to own one of these things and you ever use it as goods increase what what can you do but but just look at it all but that doesn't stop us wanting more does it reason number four he says money is fickle and it can turn on you Chapter 5, verse 12. The sleep of the labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or, or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. You know, what, why does the labourer sleep so well, whether he eats much or little? He's tired, right? He's been working hard. The rich man can't sleep, though, because, well, maybe he's got indigestion from all his, you know, fattening foods, eating too much caviar. But I think more probably it's because he's worried about his empire. You know, Bill Gates only has one daughter. She always travels with a bodyguard her whole life. Why? Because he's got so much money he's worried that She'll be kidnapped. The GFC proves that financial empires can disappear overnight. And, and, and like we saw last week, we are sitting here as some of the richest people in the world. We are in the top 10% of the world's wealthy, everyone sitting here. Uh, and yet we are stressed out about our lack. We're worried we don't have enough while our teenagers live in the lap of luxury um, with so much entertainment that they're bored. Many of them are on medication for depression. 
They have all the vigour of youth, the world is their oyster and yet their whole life is filled with angst and fear and hate. But perhaps the biggest reason none of it delivers is reason six. You can't take it with you when you're gone. Ecclesiastes 5.15 Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? See, it appears as if money is going to fix all our problems. It seems like it will give us everything we ever need. But when you stop and look, it really doesn't deliver very much at all. It doesn't deliver the love that we need. You don't need to be rich to have loving friends and family, do you? It doesn't deliver security. It gives us some freedoms, but at the same time it enslaves us to itself. It's all a half-truth and therefore a whole lie. But what's the antidote to it? Because like you, I, I want more. I, I look at things and think, ooh, if I just had that, or if you guys pay me a bit more. Anyway, you kind of, no, I don't know anymore. I'm all right. Uh, yeah, see, here we are living in this greed-soaked nation. We're being evangelised with the promise of good news by the advertising agents, which are delivering false hopes and insecurities while they're still making us yearn for more and more and more. What's the answer? Is there an answer? Can it ever be defeated? Well, there is an answer. Uh, come over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to be picking it up at verse 5. Uh, I'll bring my own Bible, so I don't know what page number that is. If, you, uh, if you've got an iPad there, you won't be any use to us finding a page either because I'm page 1 of your iPad. What? 1171. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What's the antidote to the love of money? What's the opposite there of the love of money? Is it? Well, is it? Yeah. Don't love money. Be content. Be content with what you. Paul talks in similar terms in Philippians chapter four, where he's he's sort of thanking the Philippians for sending him some money to help him on his travels. Um, he says, "I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances." I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What do you mean, content, when you're living in want and with nothing? Or what do you mean, content, when you're living with lots of stuff and you want... It sounds so simple and yet it's so hard because we're taught and imbued from a very young age to be discontent with what we have. To, to want more, to strive, to get, to you know, outdo the neighbours. And, 
And so these six words in Hebrews 13, be content with what you have, may just rank as some of the most difficult words of the entire Bible. Just think about yourself. Are you content with what you have? So what's the secret to contentment? Paul talks about he's learned the secret to contentment. What's the secret? What's the mystery? How do we get that? How do we learn it? How can we be content now? Well, three things. First of all, I think we need to learn, we need to understand, we need to appreciate the fact, really get it in our heads, that we will never be content, we will never be satisfied, we will never feel like we've got enough if we're not already now if we think we just need the next thing. If you think you're going to... If I get this amount of money or if I get this house or if I get this car, I will be content then. You won't be. See, we think that pursuing... We we think that what we're doing is pursuing contentment when we want more and more money and things. The world of consumerism promises contentment, but just not now. Not until you have X, Y and Z. Uh, To quote Brian Rosner, an Australian theologian, we are like a child who climbs a hill and sees a higher one from a distance and thinks that from there it will be possible to touch the clouds. But once we get on top of that hill, we discover we are just as far from the clouds as ever before. Or in the words of Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs, the world is infinitely deceived in thinking that contentment lies in having more than we already have. In other words, if you cannot be content now, you will never be content no matter how much you have. That's the first step to learning. The secret of contentment is just acknowledge that's right. Okay, It will not make me more contented. The second thing to do is to start looking at the future that God has promised rather than the fantasy one that we think that money will deliver but which it can't. So you've got to to set your mind in all things on the destination. Yeah. That's the only way you could ever endure a 24-hour flight to uh, London or to LA in cattle class, isn't it? With, uh, you know, being leaned on by the person next door who's sort of dribbling on your shoulder and, you know, being leaned back on by the person in front. You know, you're cramped and thinking, what are these weirdos doing? And what, you know, with weird music that you never wanted to listen to before is the only thing there. Uh, and there's bad BO and uh, there's annoying conversations around you and there's those horrible kids and there's a queue for the toilet. And <laughs> how do you endure that? Why don't you just jump out the plane now? You think, I'm going somewhere. That's why I'm here. Uh, you know, i got to think about the destination. Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, with absolute sincerity, that the sufferings he faced were but light and momentary troubles compared to the eternal weight of glory being prepared for him by Jesus. Yeah, light and momentary troubles. Okay, what did Paul go through? What is his light and momentary troubles? Imprisoned several times, shipwrecked, beaten, hated, sleepless nights, being cold and hungry, attacked by bandits on the road. Uh, It's horrible life. (laughs) And uh, light and momentary troubles, whatever. You know, how can he say, because I'm getting heaven. Jesus has paid for my mansion. I'm going to be living in splendour and luxury, which this world cannot buy. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he concludes the section, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, 
but what is unseen is eternal. Jesus talked about in that passage we read from the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasure where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But even more than that, the third and ultimate way to find contentment is to understand with confidence that God is on your side. That he's looking out for you. No matter what discontentment you're facing at the moment, what circumstances you're in, God is on your side. He's good. He hasn't lost control. Hebrews 13 verse 5 again. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's not going anywhere. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Can you say that with confidence? The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can men do to me? See, God is of infinite goodness and love and and what's more, he has richly provided for me every day so far. (laughs) Why would I doubt him? I mean, he's provided everything I've needed to this point in life, a home, family, friends, food, obviously lots of food in my case. (laughs) Even when it's been rough. I mean, I look back I broke four limbs at once as an adult, (laughs) spent five weeks in hospital and then uh, a few weeks in a wheelchair and then a year and a half on a walking stick and things. Some of the best years of my life in terms of my Christian growth. uh, It was an amazing time. I read more, which is something I've never been renowned for. (laughs) I learned heaps of stuff. People lay me uh, their Christian tape libraries and things. I like to listen to all the cool you know, Christian music of the early 90s. <laughs> uh, and I think I grew more as a Christian during that period of time than any time before or since. Uh, I got to a stage as an adult where I had $500 in the bank. Uh, I was accruing, oh no, I had to, I, was, I owed $7,000 every six months uh, and my income was $4,500 a year. And I'm saying, so, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Uh, and uh, my car got stolen. In fact, I got carjacked <laughs> uh, in Sydney, of all places, uh, in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and it was just the most remarkable thing because the insurance paid out straight away. I paid my debt, my, my bill, uh, and uh, just a whole lot of things happened. And I'm not saying this is going to happen every time. that You probably get sold. But actually, just the, the friends who loved me through that and everything... Uh, it was a great time of life. Nothing. You know? um, he, he's always provided for me and, and he's given me all I need for eternity through his own personal love and sacrifice. He's given his son for a wretch like me to adopt me, to have me, to hold me forever. I don't deserve it, but, but he's good and he's not going anywhere. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he says. What command did me? Don't be afraid. True contentment is rooted in trust in the goodness of God. 
As Christians, we're called upon to believe that God knows best how to order this world and the things in our lives and to know that he's always got our best interests at heart. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing escapes his notice. He knows what we need and he richly provides, even if I would rather do it a different way. And so Jesus can say to the person who is torn between whether I'm going to, am I going to love God or love money and why can't I have both? He say, you can't do both. You've got to pick. You're going to love one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But don't worry. He says, don't worry. Look, look at the birds. What do you think about the birds? They're not, they're not worried about their mortgage or the rent. You know, they just pick up some sticks and stick it in a tree or in your roof or wherever it is. They, they don't stress about it. God's looking after them. He's housing them. He says, look at the flowers. They are clothed with a majesty and a beauty that they didn't buy. You know, they're not wearing Armani. Uh, And he says, you cannot add a single hour to your life by worrying. In fact, if I could add to the words of Jesus, I would make him say, uh, in fact, you'll subtract, you'll shorten your life by worrying, if anything. See, that's the secret of it. Don't believe the lie that you'll be any more content when you have more. Know the glorious future to which uh, God is calling you, which he has in store for us as, and for you as his child. It's guaranteed. And know that he is good, that he's with you. He is for you and he's not going anywhere. That's the secret to contentment. That's the antidote to greed. Father, our hearts are so easily taken by the advertising, by the things around us. Uh, It's scary sometimes when we stop and look at our lives just how much we are overtaken by this world. Please forgive us. Please change us. Help us to uh, get this through our thick heads that we cannot serve both you and money and help us to serve you. Do not worry. Even when there are lots of things that we, we do worry about, help us to be calm, to pray, to put our concerns in your hand knowing that you richly provide. And we pray that you would look after us in all things. For those who are doing it particularly tough at the moment, please watch over them. Help us to love those brothers and sisters and those around us who are struggling. Uh, Help us to care for them. Uh, And we pray that we will be content in all things, particularly content knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.